Chapter twenty seven of From Bangkok to Bombay Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Jaipur and the Rajas. Imagine miles of pink houses laid out along checkerboard streets. Through the lattice work over the windows that jut out from the second stories, let dark eyes peep or here and there let nut-brown fingers loaded with rings clasp the woodwork seat on some of the balconies dark turbaned men and richly dressed boys beside them slender maidens with faces modestly covered by bright-colored scarfs in the midst of the houses set a great enclosure in which are many pink palaces and their beautiful gardens and erect about the whole a crenellated wall pierced by seven gateways now you have the outlines of my surroundings today in the rose-red city of jaipur capital of one of the most prosperous of the native states of northwest india jaipur is said to be the finest native capital of india and it is one of the few cities of the orient laid out on a regular plan its main thoroughfare is two miles long and one hundred and ten feet wide and this is intersected by other streets of the same width with narrower ones crossing between them. The roads are as hard as stone and as smooth as a floor. All the plaster houses are painted pink, so that I feel in Jaipur almost as if I had strayed onto a stage set for a musical comedy. Under the balconies of the houses are tiny shops in which are merchants selling the thousand and one things used by the people. Moving along the streets is a throng of natives and their beasts here is a little caravan of gaunt camels ridden by bare-legged men in turbans who bob up and down as they rock on their way there is a camel ridden by a woman her bare legs ringed with anklets are astride the hump and one eye peeps out as she directs the driver where to lead her mount here is another camel carrying stones and going along with his lip hanging down pouting like a spoiled child up the street is an elephant it belongs to the rajah and its rider is one of the servants of the palace who is taking the beast out for exercise there is a herd of donkeys no bigger than newfoundland dogs and almost hidden under their heavy loads their drivers pound and yell at them as they urge them along without either bridle or rein here too are many humped bullocks bearing on their backs panniers filled with hay stone or merchandise now and then arab horses come prancing by and as you look at them and their riders you have no doubt that there is wealth in jaipur what gorgeous costumes these native nobles wear enough gold embroidery to deck all the diplomats at a white house reception there are gold chains about their necks and their arms and fingers are heavy with jewels they have gold embroidered turbans and vests of cloth of gold their bridle bits are often of silver each sits straight in his saddle while the groom at his stirrup runs along shouting to the people to get out of the way the crowd on foot is as gay as that upon horseback here comes a party of singing girls dressed all in red and gold chanting strange songs as they dance through the streets their silver bracelets and anklets jingle as they move after them come moslem maidens in short waists and garments like dirty red drawers that are wide at the waist 
but taper down into tights at the calves they have a saucy way of walking like their kind the world over there are working women also some of them are mending the road breaking stones or carrying the crushed rock in baskets on their heads a corps of brown men in waistcloths their skins glistening with sweat are stamping the gravel into the roadbed and as they do so a water carrier sprinkles the crushed stone with a thin stream from his water bag everywhere in india one sees these men watering the streets or peddling water from house to house their bottles are each made of the whole skin of a pig and as they pass you feel as if you had stepped back into the days of the bible the best time to see jaipur is in the evening when the air is cold and the sinking sun flushes the pink buildings to a deeper rose then along the wide main street booths are opened and hundreds of merchants spread their wares upon the pavement here for a block only shoes are for sale and the turned-up slippers of the mohammedan and dainty footwear of satin embroidered in gold are set out to await buyers here are a score of brass merchants there a whole block is taken up with the fruit and vegetable sellers and in the side streets carpenters are sawing away walking through long aisles of hindus displaying the gaudiest cottons we come to a cashmere cloth merchant and haggle over a shawl his stock includes shawls worth thousands of rupees but some can be bought for a few dollars he asks for all of them three times what he expects to get and in case you object is willing to throw up a coin and let head or tail decide the bargain most american visitors buy shawls in this part of india and after a sale is made the merchant invariably demands that a recommendation be written in his notebook this he shows to other travelers and i find scattered over india the autographs of many of my prominent fellow countrymen at delhi i saw an autograph of a man so noted that the merchant who had it at the bottom of a statement that his wares were good told me that he had been offered one hundred rupees for it and that he would not sell it for one hundred thousand rupees over another well-known signature is the testimonial that the writer finds a certain man's shawls good and he supposes they are cheap the dealer at that stand tells me that this notable bought a dozen cashmere shawls saying he wanted to use them for making undershirts these were of the kind called ring shawls so fine that one can be pulled through a wedding ring it must be nice to have an undershirt so filmy and i can see the advantage of such a garment in the case of a man who travels with his extra clothing in his hat over all these traders and other residents of the city as well as over the more than two million souls in the state of which it is the capital the maharaja of jaipur has the power of life and death he lives in the pomp befitting such a potentate his palaces here cover acres and in his gardens are silvery fountains and peacocks spreading their gorgeous feathers as they strut in and out of the courtyards these courts are floored with marble over which are scattered persian rugs of great price in one of the palaces i saw a billiard room the floor of which was covered with the skin of tigers and leopards i passed from one to another of a series of small rooms filled with beautiful works of indian art carved ivory jeweled and inlaid caskets and enamels such as are only made 
in the state of jaipur i saw also the outside of the zenana where his highness keeps his numerous ladies and then took a look at the stables they are built around a space of six acres or more and are heavily roofed to keep off the sun the stalls are filled with fine stock there are stallions from arabia america and europe as well as some from different parts of india the maharaja has besides a dozen or more state elephants for use on ceremonial occasions some are of enormous size their tusks have been cut off and the ends bound with brass rings these beasts are tattooed on their foreheads and ears in the patterns of a shawl when they are brought out for the ruler they are covered with fancy trappings and have brass chains around their necks on my first visit to india i accepted the invitation of the secretary of the maharaja to ride to the ruined city of amber upon one of the royal elephants he was brought around for me shortly before noon and at the command of the hindu driver sitting on his head he knelt down so that i might mount to his back i scrambled up a step-ladder into a cushioned saddle with bars around the sides and the driver showed me how to hold on while the huge creature lumbered to his feet he raised himself upon one leg at a time and i bobbed back and forth like a ship in a storm after we started the motion was a swaying this way and that and i became half seasick as we wound our way up the mountains in front of me was the driver with his brown legs clasped over the elephant's neck just back of the big flapping ears with a sharp steel hook he stirred up the great beast and now and then made him trot after a time i got used to the motion and when we were out in the country and climbing the hills i began to enjoy my strange ride i had to watch out however for every now and then something made the elephant shy at one place a monkey ran across the road and a long-tailed ape jumped through the branches just over our heads whereupon my beast swerved and almost threw me out of my seat at other places we saw wild peacocks and among the trees wild hogs were feeding by and by we came to the ruined city of amber which long ago was the capital of jaipur it was once a magnificent city with fine residences big business quarters and temples and palaces but one of the rajahs of the past became dissatisfied with his surroundings and decreed that the capital should be moved down to the plains amber is now quite deserted and the monkeys play in its ruins the present maharaja succeeded to the throne only recently i do not know what he is worth but he certainly has money to burn when on one occasion his predecessor went to england he is said to have spent a million dollars on the journey besides giving away something like a half million dollars in charities during that trip he chartered a special steamer which was fitted up with six different kitchens to comply with the varying caste requirements of his retinue he took with him his own drinking water from the ganges and had a little temple built on the ship where he worshipped rama his divine ancestor in his train were priests servants of all kinds several wives and a troop of notch girls and when he reached london his cortege filled to overflowing the palace that the government allotted to him indeed the wealth of some of these native princes seems fabulous in every jewelry store in the cities of india one finds flashy jewelry set with diamonds worth a fortune 
at calcutta i saw two amazing rings one had a diamond of about the size of a hickory nut set around with a cluster of small diamonds as big as peas and the whole was affixed to a finger ring containing enough gold to make a hunting case watch in the other the central stone was a ruby fully as big as a chestnut and the diamonds about it were very beautiful the settings of these rings were larger around than a twenty-five cent piece and i asked the jeweler who would wear such gorgeous and unwieldy objects he replied oh we sell these to the rajahs they want the most extravagant jewelry and some of them fairly cover themselves with gems the treasure of the Kekwara baroda includes gun carriages and cannon of gold and silver containing two hundred and eighty pounds of precious metal apiece in state processions these are drawn by white bullocks covered with gold embroidered trappings and with horns encased in silver in this collection also is a great necklace containing the sixth largest diamond in the world and three pearls said to be valued at one hundred thousand dollars the richest of all the princes is the nizam of hyderabad whose revenues are about fifteen million dollars a year his palaces are enormous and he has seven thousand retainers and servants his courtyards full of elephants camels and horses remind one of a page from the arabian nights the country ruled by the nizam is more than twice as large as the state of ohio he is a mohammedan but the bulk of his thirteen million subjects are hindus his collection of jewels is said to be worth thirty million dollars he has the nizam diamond one of the finest stones of its kind and in his realm is golconda the diamond producing center of the past there is a story that on one occasion the late nizam of hyderabad was walking with his small son who expressed a desire for a red-tailed nightingale he saw on another small boy's wrists the nizam turned to one of his courtiers go buy that bird for seven hundred rupees said he seven hundred rupees exclaimed the courtier why your highness could get it for a sixteenth of that sum his exalted highness frowned indeed said he go pay the boy seven thousand rupees and bring me the nightingale and the receipt another prince who has magnificent jewels and who lives in great state is the maharana of udapur whose ancestors refused to mingle their blood even with that of a mohammedan emperor he claims to have the bluest blood of any of the native rulers and clings to all the old customs progressive rulers like those of jaipur baroda mysore and gwalior have spent their revenues on improving their domains but udapur has no use for such modern ideas he is an ultra-conservative speaks no english and never leaves india on one occasion he heard that at a great durbar or official gathering to which he was invited the viceroy was to ride at the head of the procession with his wife on an elephant beside him udapur declined to attend for he would not lower himself by riding behind a woman indeed he sent a richly caparisoned elephant to walk in his place in line because of his traditional descent from the sun-god himself the maharana of udapur claims to outrank every human being in india but the nizam of hyderabad by virtue of having the most extensive territory the biggest income and the largest army 
of any native prince claims that he is the premier native ruler when king george v and queen mary came to delhi just after their coronation the nizam asserted his right to lead the grand procession of princes which was to file past their majesties udapur declared that if he had to follow the nizam he would not come the situation was delicate for the british cannot afford to offend the sensitive feelings of the more powerful of the native princes finally both the rulers claims were satisfied the nizam led the procession but udapur as personal aide-de-camp to king george stood on the dais beside the king emperor while the other princes of india passed in review the man who thought of this happy solution was knighted the native states of india are scattered all over the country from kashmir and nepal in the himalayas to the southern end of hindustan the princes and rajahs are supposed by the common people to have absolute power but they are all to some extent under the control of the british and all have british advisers at their elbows these princes may not make war or peace or send ambassadors to each other or to outside states they are permitted to keep limited military forces as police or for cooperation with the british governor but even the nizam has only sixteen thousand soldiers no european may reside at any of their courts without the sanction of the government and in case of outrageous misrule the british can come in and take charge some few of the native states pay a cash tribute leading states such as hyderabad mysore baroda and kashmir are in direct relations with the government of british india while others are grouped under the direction of agents of the viceroy sometimes for misconduct a ruler is deposed by the british or he may lose his title of maharaja or the number of guns accorded him in salute may be cut down every rajah is extremely jealous of his quota of guns one with a salute of less than nine guns may not be addressed as your highness it must gall the haughty udapur to have to get along with only nineteen guns while the rulers of gwalior hyderabad baroda kashmir and mysore are twenty-one gun rajahs while many of the native rulers are extremely backward and some like the maharao of kutch boast that they spend nothing on public improvements others are notably progressive the late baroda was tireless in his efforts to better conditions the maharajas of gwalior and of mysore are leaders of progress the latter has hired experts some of them americans to help him with his various projects such as a great hydroelectric plant a blast furnace cotton and woolen mills and irrigation works he has granted his people representative institutions and indians claim that mysore is as well administered as british india itself bangalore the capital city has such fine sanitation that it is practically plague-proof yet this ruler is not a university graduate has never been out of india and is a fanatical hindu quite a number of the reigning princes of india have been educated abroad at paris or in england or even in the united states the late Gekwara baroda sent his son to harvard the british virtually obliged the rajahs to send their sons to one of the four princes colleges which are situated at lahore ajmer rajkot and indore 
the most important of these is mayo college at ajmer less than one hundred miles south of jaipur it is managed by a committee of native rulers and was founded in eighteen seventy three by lord mayo especially for the noble youth of rajputana in the united states the college would rank as a preparatory school with the standing of say andover or exeter after completing the regular course a young man may take postgraduate work in the same institution equivalent to university training with us the teaching is in english hindi urdu sanskrit and persian i was interested to learn that as taught at mayo the multiplication table does not stop at twelve times twelve but with twenty-five times twenty-five some of the two hundred young princes in attendance are under the care of tutors and all are allowed one servant while some are granted more some of the wealthy ones have their own automobiles athletic exercise is compulsory and the masters try to inculcate the ideals of such british schools as eton and rugby when the east india company began expanding its scope in hindustan the states under native rulers came gradually under british influence and the princes were usually confirmed in their possessions this policy was more or less abandoned not long before the mutiny of eighteen fifty seven and in the regime of lord dalhousie either because of failure of heirs or because of gross misrule some of the states fell into the hands of the company but when following the mutiny the british crown took over the management of british territory in india queen victoria made a pledge to the indian princes that they should be protected in their rights and dignity and that the integrity of their domains should be preserved so now when the nationalist agitators declare that the rajahs are bloodsuckers fattening on the poor and demand their deposition the british feel bound to protect the rulers from aggression this is probably the main reason why the rajahs have remained loyal to the british during all the unrest of the last fifteen or twenty years End of chapter 27